Chapter 20 of The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. We left Milan by rail, the cathedral six or seven miles behind us, the vast, dreamy, bluish, snow-clad mountains twenty miles in front of us. These were the accented points in the scenery. The more immediate scenery consisted of fields and farmhouses outside the car, and a monster-headed dwarf and a mustached woman inside it. These latter were not show people. Alas, deformity and female beards are all too common in Italy and attract no attention. We passed through a range of wild, picturesque hills, steep, wooded, snow-cone-shaped with rugged crags projecting here and there and with dwellings and ruinous castles perched away up toward the drifting clouds we lunched at the curious old town of como at the foot of the lake and then we took the small steamer and had an afternoon's pleasure excursion to this place pelagio when we walked ashore, a party of policemen, people whose cocked hats and showy uniforms would shame the finest uniform in the military service of the United States, put us into a little stone cell and locked us in. We had the whole passenger list for company. But their room would have been preferable, for there was no light, there were no windows, no ventilation. It was close and hot. We were much crowded. It was a black hole of Calcutta on a small scale. Presently a smoke rose about our feet. Smoke that smelled of all the dead things of earth and all the putrefaction and corruption imaginable. We were there five minutes, and when we got out it was hard to tell which of us carried the vilest fragrance. These miserable outcasts called that fumigating us. And the term was a tame one, indeed. They fumigated us to guard themselves against the cholera. Though we hailed from a no-infected port, we had left the cholera far behind us all the time. However, they must keep epidemics away somehow or other, and fumigation is cheaper than soap. They must either wash themselves or fumigate other people. Some of the lower classes had rather die than wash, but the fumigation of strangers causes them no pangs. They need no fumigation themselves. Their habits make it unnecessary. They carry their preventive with them. They sweat and fumigate all the day long. I trust I'm a humble and consistent Christian. I try to do what is right. I know it is my duty to pray for them that despitefully use me, and therefore, hard as it is, I shall still try to pray for these fumigating, macaroni-stuffing organ-grinders. Our hotel sits at the water's edge, at least its front garden does, and we walk among the shrubbery and smoke at twilight. We look afar off at Switzerland and the Alps, and feel an indolent willingness to look no closer. We go down the steps and swim in the lake. We take a shapely little boat and 
sail abroad among the reflection of the stars, lie on the thwarts and listen to the distant laughter and singing, the soft melody of flutes and guitars that come floating across the water from pleasuring gondolas. We close the evening with exasperating billiards on one of those same old execrable tables, a midnight luncheon in our ample bedchamber, and a final smoke in its contracted veranda facing the water, the gardens, and the mountains, a summing up of the day's events. Then to bed with drowsy brains, harassed with a mad panorama that mixes up pictures of France, of Italy, of the ship, of the ocean, of home, in grotesque and bewildering disorder, then a melting away of familiar faces, of cities, and of tossing waves into a great calm of forgetfulness and peace. After which, the nightmare. Breakfast in the morning, and then the lake. I did not like it yesterday. I thought Lake Tahoe was much finer. I have to confess now, however, that my judgment erred somewhat, though not extravagantly. I always had an idea that Como was a vast basin of water like Tahoe, shut in by great mountains. Well, the border of huge mountains is here, but the lake itself is not a basin. It is as crooked as any brook, and only from one quarter to two-thirds as wide as the Mississippi. There is not a yard of low ground on either side of it, nothing but endless chains of mountains that spring abruptly from the water's edge and tower to altitudes varying from a thousand to two thousand feet. Their craggy sides are clothed with vegetation and white specks of houses peep out from the luxuriant foliage everywhere, and are even perched upon jutting and picturesque pinnacles a thousand feet above your head. Again, for miles along the shores, handsome country seats surrounded by gardens and groves sit fairly in the water, sometimes in nooks carved by nature, out of the vine-hung precipices and with no egress or ingress save by boats. Some have great, broad, stone staircases leading up to the water, with heavy stone balustrades ornamented with statuary and fancifully adorned with creeping vines and bright-colored flowers, for all the world like a drop-curtain in a theater, and lacking nothing but long-waisted, high-heeled women and gloomed gallants and silken tights coming down to go serenading in the splendid gondola in waiting. A great feature of Kumo's attractiveness is the multitude of pretty houses and gardens that cluster upon its shores and on its mountainsides. It looks so snug and so homelike, and at eventide, when everything seems to slumber and the music of the vesper bells comes stealing over the water, one almost believes that Nowhere else than on the lake of Como can there be found such a paradise of tranquil repose. From my window here in Pelagio, I have a view of the other side of the lake now, which is a, as beautiful as a picture. 
a scarred and wrinkled precipice rises to the height of eighteen hundred feet on a tiny bench halfway up its vast wall sits a little snowflake of a church no bigger than a martin box apparently skirting the base of the cliff are a hundred orange groves and gardens flecked with glimpses of the white dwellings that are buried in them in front three or four gondolas lie idle upon the water and in the burnished mirror of the lake mountain chapel houses groves and boats are counterfeited so brightly and so clearly that one scarce knows where the reality leaves off and the reflection begins the surroundings of this picture are fine a mile away a grove plumed promontory juts far into the lake and glasses its palace in the blue depths in midstream a boat is cutting the shining surface and leaving a long track behind like a ray of light the mountains beyond are veiled in a dreamy purple haze far in the opposite direction a tumbled mass of domes and verdant slopes and valleys bars the lake and here indeed does distance lend enchantment to the view for on this broad canvas sun and clouds and the richest of atmospheres have blended a thousand tints together and over its surface the filmy lights and shadows drift hour after hour and glorify it with a beauty that seems reflected out of heaven itself beyond all question this is the most voluptuous scene we have yet looked upon last night the scenery was striking and picturesque on the other side crags and trees and snowy houses were reflected in the lake with a wonderful distinctness and streams of light from many a distant window shot far abroad over the still waters on this side near at hand great mansions white with moonlight glared out from the midst of masses of foliage that lay black and shapeless in the shadows that fell from the cliff above and down in the margin of the lake every feature of a weird vision was faithfully repeated Today we have idled through a wonder of a garden attached to a ducal estate but enough of description is enough i judge i suspect that this is the same place the gardener's son deceived the lady of lions with but i do not know you may have heard of the passage somewhere a deep vale shut by alpine hills from the rude world near a clear lake margined by fruits of gold and whispering myrtles glassing softest skies and cloudless save with rare and rosette shadows a palace lifting to eternal heaven its marbled walls from out of a glossy bower of coolest foliage musical with birds that is all very well except the clear part of the lake it certainly is clearer than a great many lakes but how dull its waters are compared with the wonderful transparency of lake tahoe i speak of the north shore of tahoe where one can count the scales on a trout at a depth of a hundred and eighty feet i have tried to get this statement off at par here with no success 
so i've been obliged to negotiate it at fifty per cent discount at this rate i find some takers perhaps the reader will receive it on the same terms ninety feet instead of a hundred and eighty but let it be remembered that those are forced terms sheriff's sale prices as far as i am privately concerned i abate not a jot of the original assertion that in those strangely magnifying waters one may count the scales on a trout a trout of the large kind at a depth of one hundred eighty feet may see every pebble on the bottom might even count a paper of dray pins people talk of the transparent waters of the mexican bay of acapulco but in my own experience i know they cannot compare with those i am speaking of i have fished for trout in tahoe and at a measured depth of eighty-four feet i have seen them put their noses to the bait and i could see their gills open and shut i could hardly have seen the trout themselves at that distance in the open air as i go back in spirit and recall that noble sea reposing among the snow peaks six thousand feet above the ocean the conviction comes strong upon me again that como would only seem a bedizened little courtier in that august presence sorrow and misfortune overtake the legislature that still from year to year permits tahoe to retain its unmusical cognomen tahoe it suggests no crystal waters no picturesque shores no sublimity tahoe for a sea in the clouds a sea that has character and asserts it in solemn calms at times at times in savage storms a sea whose royal seclusion is guarded by a cordon of sentinel peaks that lift their frosty fronts nine thousand feet above the level world a sea whose every aspect is impressive whose belongings are all beautiful whose lonely majesty types the deity tahoe means grasshoppers i mean grasshopper soup it is indian and suggestive of indians they say it is paiute possibly it is digger i am satisfied it was named by the diggers those degraded savages who roast their dead relatives and then mix the human grease and ashes of bones with tar and gommet thick over their heads and foreheads and ears and go caterwauling about the hills and call it mourning these are the gentry that name the lake people say that tahoe means silver lake limpid water falling leaf bosh it means grasshopper soup the favorite dish of the digger tribe and of the paiutes as well it isn't worth while in these practical times for people to talk about indian poetry there never was any in them except in the fenimore cooper indians but they are an extinct tribe that never existed i know the noble red man i've camped with the indians i've been on the war-path with them taken part in the chase with them and for grasshoppers help them steal cattle i have roamed with them scalped them had them for breakfast i would gladly eat the whole race if i'd had the chance but i am growing unreliable i will return to my comparison of the lakes como is a little deeper than tahoe if 
people here tell the truth. They say it is 1,800 feet deep at this point, but it does not look dead enough blue for that. Tahoe is 1,525 feet in the center by the state geologist's measurement. They say the great peak opposite this town is 5,000 feet high, but I feel sure that 3,000 feet of this statement is a good honest lie. The lake is a mile wide here and maintains about that width from this point to its northern extremity, which is distant 16 miles. From here to its southern extremity, say 15 miles, it is not over half a mile wide at any place, I should think. Its snow-clad mountains, one hears so much about, are only seen occasionally and then in the distance. The Alps. Tahoe is from 10 to 18 miles wide, and its mountain shut it in like a wall. Their summits are never free from snow the year round. One thing about it is very strange. It is never even a skim of ice upon its surface. Although lakes in the same range of mountains lying in a lower and warmer temperature, freeze over in the winter. It's cheerful to meet a shipmate of mine in these out-of-the-way places and compare notes with him. We found one of ours here, an old soldier of the war, who is seeking bloodless adventures and rest from his campaigns in these sunny lands. Colonel J. Heron Foster, editor of a Pittsburgh journal and a most estimable gentleman, as these sheets are being prepared for the press, I am pained to learn of his decease shortly after his return home. Mark Twain End of chapter 20 Recording by B. Scott Holmes, bscotthomes.com